This is The Interchange Recharged, a Wood McKenzie production. I'm David Bandman. It's been a very busy year for events in the clean energy industry. In June, we were in San Francisco for the Solar and Energy Storage Summit. And recently, our sister podcast, The Energy Gang, hosted Woodmac's annual hydrogen conference in London. And today I'm in Houston at the Hotel Zaza Memorial City to add carbon capture, utilization, and storage to our podcast energy mix. We've done solar, we've done hydrogen, now it's time to examine CCUS. On the show today, we're joined by leading industry figures and analysts to help us explore the opportunities, challenges, and technologies that are driving CCUS from a niche market to a mainstream piece of the net zero puzzle. So we're here set up in the main hall uh, to kick off the CCUS conference. And as you can probably hear, the place is buzzing. A lot of excitement for the conference today. So we just heard from Vari Evans, head of CCUS Research at Wood McKenzie. Uh, I'm about to grab her and have her join us in the chair and get her thoughts to kick off the event and start our podcast today. Vari, welcome to the show. Thank you, great to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So you kicked off the CCUS conference this morning with, uh, with a great presentation, very insightful. I took a lot, uh, I took a lot out of it. Uh, what are some of the key themes David, first of all, it was important for us to be here in Houston for our first ever CCUS conference because it's really where the action is happening. One of the things that we were keen to get across is just how much potential we see, first of all, in carbon capture as a technology with a big role to play in energy transition, but then also the US is you know, relatively um, strong standpoint in that market today. So um, I wanted to kind of lay out the opportunity I also wanted to just set the scene for a bit more challenge coming through as, as companies really try to kind of put money towards these projects um, and get them towards FID because it's not as simple as me just standing up on stage and, and saying that these projects are going to happen. Yeah, there was a, what was interesting was your slide that showed all the different projects that are out there in, in various stages uh, of development right. pre-FID. So there's, there's a lot there that can move forward under the right environment. For sure. I guess what we're going to dive into in a lot more detail today is just what makes those projects happen. So a couple of key elements, policy and regulation, a really big one. And over the past couple of years, what we've seen is governments really trying hard, listening to companies and to industries and saying, well, what, what policies do we need to have in place to get these projects off the ground to kickstart this industry? And nowhere has that been faster or bigger than here in the US with the Inflation Reduction Act and the Infrastructure Bill. So from a policy and reg standpoint, on paper, US is actually one of the leading companies. And on paper is a kind of key term here because, you know, it's not actually hitting the ground in a, in a huge amount of scale yet, but we've seen that really come, come forward. When you look forward 10, 20 years, what's the one thing that probably excites you the most about uh, this new technology? So I know we're here in Houston today, David, but actually when I look for over 10, 20 years, what I hope is the case is that this technology has broken through enough that it can be much more widely applied. And I'm talking about 
you know, where the really concentrated clusters of emissions are in the world are mostly, mostly in the Asia-Pac region. In China, in Japan, Korea, and in India, we've got a really strong cluster of emissions from fossil fuels, you know, power plants and, and fossil fuel-led industries that are young fleets. They don't, they don't really have any other option but to, to use something like CCUS to decarbonize. The technology is just too expensive for that for that region today in, in many cases. And the policy isn't that well supported. So what I hope is that, you know, in places like Houston and where I'm from in the UK and, and Northern Europe, that projects can really prove out the technology and therefore it can be really widely applied to, to really hit hard to abate strong clusters of emissions in, in Asia. One question I have on, on your cost slide is as you were looking at the various um, ranges of yeah. the cost for CCUS based on, on the different vertical, the most expensive was gas, the gas-powered plants. Why is that? It's a great question. So one of the things that really influences the cost is how concentrated the CO2 is coming out of the flue stack of the, of the plant we are capturing. And in gas-fired power applications, the concentration of CO2 is pretty dilute, actually. It's kind of three, four, five, six percent. Whereas the concentration of, of CO2 in the stream coming out of, let's say, a natural, natural gas processing plant, or even some cement applications, is much more like sort of 50, 60, up to 90 percent purity. So it's much easier to capture from a pure CO2 gas stream, and that's why. But of course, you and I know that natural gas-fired power uh, has probably got quite a long life ahead of it in terms of the energy transition, in terms of providing baseload power where it's needed in lots of power markets. So that's one of the applications that's high cost today, but could really come into its own if the technology costs come down. It's interesting the cleaner burning fuel yeah. is actually the most expense from, a, from a carbon exactly. capture storage, yeah, which, yeah. but it makes sense based on the concentration. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, I appreciate you stopping by and, and chatting with us. Thanks, David. Good to be here. Cheers. The first panel of the day was focused on the best CCUS opportunities for corporates and how we can maximize the benefits. George Bilicic is Vice Chairman of Investment Banking and Global Head of Power energy and infrastructure at Lazard. He was on the panel with our very own Ed Crooks, Vice Chair of the Americas at Woodmac. They joined me in the studio to tell us where the money should be going to best utilize CCUS. Let's listen to that now. George, welcome to the show. Great, great to be here, thank you. Yeah, so you, uh, you just finished up a panel discussion on CCUS, our first of the day. Um, and we're also joined by Ed Crooks, host of our sister podcast, The Energy Gang. Uh, so we'd really like to just get your thoughts on how that panel went. What were some of the key takeaways? So, George, I'll start with you. I thought it was a terrific panel. Um, it was a mix of technical understanding, understanding of the total addressable market. We had one of the best projects on the panel and the two partners, which was outstanding. And then, you know, what's clear to us from this discussion and the work we do is this is a real business area. There's a lot of capital that's going to be allocated. It's part of the multidimensional solution to decarbonization goals. I thought it was really striking what consensus there was on the point that carbon capture is going to be an absolutely essential part of the energy landscape if we're to get anywhere near to achieving goals for net zero emissions by the middle of the century. And then there's a tremendous amount of interest, a lot of activity going on, but 
it's all crucially dependent on policy support. It's very, very important for policy support to be maintained in terms of carbon pricing, other economic mechanisms to incentivize carbon capture. It's also really important that other policy measures also support investment and development, things like permitting, regulation, the ways that the path can be smoothed towards infrastructure development. A lot of that stuff's really crucial for carbon capture, just as it is for any other kind of energy investment. And there's still, I think, a lot more that needs to be done on that front. How do you see, George, the, the market receptivity to these types of projects moving forward? Is there, is there a lot of appetite at this moment, or is there a little bit of a wait-and-see attitude? So the first thing about this sector is it's dominated by a lot of press release that is vaporous. Second, putting that negative thought aside, there's a lot of interest in the area. People have meetings about it, but the technical follow-up to think about how to structure the project, how to get the different partners in the room, get beyond you know, high-level conversation, there needs to be more of that. I don't have a sense that people are waiting. I just don't think the momentum on the planning and making decisions about business model is as accelerated as it needs to be to hit some of these metrics that are in the wood Mac materials about when these projects are going to get done. And just picking up on a point that my colleague uh, Elena Belletti uh, made, who's a head of uh, carbon research at Woodmac, she was saying, we don't have unlimited time. We can't wait forever. Just again, when you take the step back and think, why are we doing all this in order to uh, address the threat of climate change? And the carbon budget is limited. There's only a certain number of megatons of greenhouse gases that the world can afford to emit between now and 2050, if we are to hit that goal of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees C. At the moment, we're not anything like on course to that. And the longer we wait, the more difficult it becomes to get onto that trajectory. So as I say, we can't wait. We just need to get on with it. We need to encourage the investments to get made as quickly as we possibly can. I made this point in the panel, but if you look at the carbon emissions reduction goals of corporations in America and their targets, they're all behind schedule. And so to hit those goals, you can't decarbonize the steel industry in a short period of time or other industries. This carbon sequestration strategy is a great way to hit these, these goals that have been set by companies as part of their ESG strategy. So that should accelerate some of the internal planning at companies if they care about meeting those goals. You know, one of the other key takeaways that I, that I noticed was that from a policy standpoint, that there's a lot of countries that are well behind in terms of having regulatory environment and policies in place to help with the CCUS process. And what do you think needs to be done on that front to help expand that out to get a little bit more excitement and momentum behind it? Well, I mean, as you say, there's a lot of countries a long way, that are a long way behind. There's a lot of countries that are doing really interesting things and very much kind of uh, setting the pace for the rest of the world. The United States is clearly there because of the Inflation Reduction Act and everything that's in that in terms of incentivizing carbon capture. Canada was another country that we talked about quite a bit on the panel. That's somewhere that's really doing very impressive things in terms of pricing carbon and setting out a trajectory for the future price of carbon, giving a lot of transparency to the industry in terms of where things are going to be and what the cost of emissions are going to be in the future. The United Kingdom is another one. Again, UK doing a lot of interesting work on CCUS. There are things going on. I think a couple of things need to happen. One is probably some of those leaders need to establish success in terms of actual steel in the ground projects that are up and running and working and are 
commercially viable. And then the other thing is that we just need to get that international commitment to decarbonization and everything that goes with that in terms of pricing carbon. And that needs to be underlined at a global scale. And that's why something like COP28 uh, meeting that's coming up in Dubai, starting at the end of November, going on into December. That's why those kind of things are so important. Don't need me to explain this. It's obviously fantastically difficult to get any kind of global agreement on emissions reduction. It's amazing in a way that we've made as much progress as we have in terms of the world coming together to agree goals for limiting global warming. There is, as you say, still a lot more to be done. A lot of countries lagging behind, but we just need to try and keep up the effort in whatever way we can and just convince those countries that are lagging that it's in everybody's interest. There is a global interest in addressing global warming. If we don't do it, the consequences will be catastrophic. And so everyone needs to make more progress in whatever way they can. George, you know, there's a lot of projects out there that are in various stages of development. And you look at kind of the Exxon combined with Denbury portfolio is, is by far the largest. Do you think that this is uh, an industry that eventually becomes dominated by a few big players? Or is there room for a lot of diversification across different companies? I think it depends on the stage of the project. I think you'll see a developer class that grows here that is good at project design, gathering people in a room, structuring, and getting the project to FID and then monetizing the project. Maybe they would have monetized a portion of it ahead of time. Earlier than that, some of these emerging technology companies that are important to the functioning of the system. Once the project goes to FID and it goes to operation and is an owned and operated project, I think this is going to be owned by big companies that are going to be enduring or new companies that are created that are clearly going to be enduring because they have scale and they're publicly traded. Then the assets themselves, if the cash flows are contracted, are going to be a lot of, like a lot of other infrastructure assets that may be well-owned by pension fund capital, sovereign wealth capital, infrastructure funds, maybe new public companies, even though they're out of favor, yield codes that would logically own assets like that. Yeah, and this was a point that came out very clearly in our discussion. And if you're sequestering carbon, you need to sequester it forever. I mean, to all practical purposes forever. I mean, you know, we don't know exactly how long that's going to be, but certainly for all practical purposes, you need to have the confidence that when you're picking a company to own and operate a storage site, that company is going to be around. I think someone used the figure of 140 years, but it's true. You're going to need that company to still be there in 140 years, probably 240, 340 as well. And so when you're thinking about the corporate structures and who's going to be involved in this, that's really what you've got to be thinking about, which is, as you say, how can you get that certainty that people are going to be managing these facilities reliably, the carbon that's sequestered is going to stay sequestered and so on. That's going to be absolutely vital as the industry develops. And I, I also think the um, big EPCs like Bechtel, Floor, Kiwit, people of that ilk, Technique, are, are going to be quite important in this area. This whole service provider industry needs to be layered on top of the CCUS uh, development. I mean, and, and based on that life cycle, do you see at this stage much private equity interest in the space? You do with the private equity class that's venture capital. Then you'll see infrastructure capital focused on the area, but they don't know what they're supposed to be doing in the area. They're studying it. There'll be someone at almost every major infrastructure fund or private equity fund that knows the space. 
I don't think that they know what to do in the area and they're, and, and they're not sure. It feels like an area that's going to be more dominated by corporations. Having said that, we're, we have a project in our office now. We will go to private equity, impact investors, infrastructure capital to fund the DEVCO. And then when we construct the asset and the related CCUS part of the business, we'll go to traditional financial pools of capital because the cash flows are going to be stabilized and the key corporate party in the middle of all this is super blue chip. So I think it's not an accident that Chevron was on Ed's panel and that Exxon bought Denver. I mean, it, you know, and this is an area that Total focuses on. I, I would bet that the big oil companies that have been more electrons energy transition focused migrate to more molecules energy transition focused, including CCUS over the next few years. Yeah, I think that's very likely. I also think there are clear synergies with their existing business. As Elena mentioned on stage, she's saying people used to uh, complain about CCUS, saying this is just kind of an excuse. This is just a way that we can maintain the fossil fuel industry. We can keep using fossil fuels so long as we capture and store the carbon. I kind of feel like my response to that critique is, well, yes, isn't that the point, right? I mean, you know, fossil fuels provide enormous value to the world. They do just unfortunately have this colossal drawback, which is that they contribute to global warming, which is an existential threat to our civilization. So if we can find ways that we can continue using those fuels and uh, remove the carbon threat, that seems like a good trade. That seems like something we should be happy to do. And I don't want to minimize you know, local pollution problems and other issues which are also created by fossil fuels. Clearly, there's issues there. But as I say, when you think about the kind of the big calculus of the benefits to the world and the costs and the risks that they're creating in the world, it seems like if we can remove a lot of those costs and risks, that's a, a very valuable thing to be able to do. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like the partnership is going to play a key role in the development. I mean, we've seen that with other energy transition technologies is how they kind of get to that next stage is partner with a big company that sees the promise in the technology and further development. It seems like a natural fit for some of the service companies with this, whether it be midstream or, or you name it, but that will play a key role in helping move this forward. That's right. Yeah, core competency of a successful company in this area will be knowing how to partner or catalyzing partnerships. You can also see like uh, one of these companies that become large in the CCUS area, really changing their business model to being more of a services model. They own the facility, but they're offering that access to that facility to more than one counterparty. And at the same time, they broaden their business model to provide greater decarbonization services. So Chevron is talking to you know, Acme Incorporated that wants to use their facility, and they say, we can help you in this area too, or we have a renewable fuel solution for you. And so we, could, we see that developing. It seems like a, just an expansion of your midstream That's right. business to accommodate other kind of verticals within the midstream exactly. space. Exactly, yep, yep. And George, uh, kind of specifically around CCUS, but even more broadly speaking, energy transition in, in general, how do you think that the current financial environment, the, the, the rate environment that we have, the inflation, the recent bank downgrades that, that we've seen, how do you think overall that's impacting the advancement of some of these technologies within energy transition? I think this area is unstoppable. It's on an upward line and there's gonna be blips along the way. We have a little bit of blip of a blip now on cost of capital, supply chain, some other things. 
and there's just going to be an adjustment to that, and then it just continues. From time to time, that things will slow and maybe even stop, but we don't think this current environment is going to affect really anything happening in the energy transition. One important point, though, is that as you talk about the energy transition, traditional energy, regular oil and gas, pipelines, it's a critical part of the system going forward. And so we're not going to be able to eliminate traditional oil and gas pipelines, and we shouldn't even be trying to do it, even as the energy transition continues. So CCUS is an interesting part of that strategy because it's a big offset to something we can't eliminate. And true nature-based offsets is also another really interesting area because we're just not going to be able to deal with traditional energy and its emissions, traditional industrial companies and their emissions, given the current state of technology. Well, listen, I appreciate you guys both joining me. Great discussion, uh, not only here, but on the panel as well. And so I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. It's a great conference. This is really impressive. Thank you. Yeah, thanks very much. Great talking to you. So we just heard from Ed and George, and my next guest was also on that panel, Tim Dunkett, president and CEO of Talos Energy. And he joins me now to explore this some more. Talos is a company that is uh, 10 years old, almost that's called 11 years old. We started it with five founders, a credit card, rented office space, raised a lot of private equity capital to build out an EMP business in the Gulf of Mexico. So we built two companies and sold those using private equity capital, started Talos with private equity capital, went public in 2018, We've been public five years. So, you know, smaller public company trying to become a bigger public company. And then out of the pandemic, as we looked and said, hey, how do we make ourselves more interesting? So we survived, didn't have any financial distress. We're able to survive all that. But coming out of that, you know, with a less participation in the public equity market for energy companies, and I'm sure you know a lot about that from your investment banking days, how do we make this more interesting? We started thinking about decarbonization. We started thinking about that as a business, as an industry segment. Where do we participate in that? CCS came up. We had so much seismic from our legacy companies and our legacy knowledge of the geology. The CCS was just a, a right natural fit. So we jumped in super early, built a huge land position, a huge storage portfolio, started bringing in partners, which I know we'll talk about. And then that led us to where we are today. You know, look, I think what's interesting about where the market's going is, uh, is clearly the 45Q expansion in the IRA changed the discussion. You know, I think when people got into, if you just look at our Bayou Bend project, and we could talk about other projects, as we looked at grabbing that poor space and what part of that admitting community might actually want to do this, the list was relatively narrow, pre-combustion, maybe new construction, because the 45Q tax credit didn't support the expansion into more complicated industries. But look, for us, we thought it was gonna go there and we needed to get ahead of that. You know, we're kind of a first, our only advantage can be to move early. And so we, we made a bet that if these industrial players were making climate pledges and those were real and they were public companies, they're gonna to have to live with that type of guidance, if you will. And clearly we had an administration was gonna to try to figure out how to support that. And so the idea was, look, even though this marketplace, if you will, of brownfield emitters and new field construction is narrow on a $50 45Q credit, it opens up on an 85 or it opens up on a 90, it can certainly open up on direct pay. So we, you know, we better lean in now if we're gonna go. And so we had to make a bet that that would come. And that led us to making a bid on that first 43,000 acres, which was the start of Bayou Bend. You know, when we were the prevailing winner on that, we were able to go spend some time with companies that are thinking a lot this, a lot, a lot more long-term than we were, i.e. Chevron and some others. Hopefully those guys who are focused on not only their scope one emissions, but then how do they want to kind of build out infrastructure and, and maybe, you know, kind of be in the CCS side of the business. 
And when Chevron came in and said, hey, look, we're really focused on it. We love what you want to do here. But if we're going to do it, we really need to expand it. And that was almost at the same time we were seeing the 45 key. So we just timed that perfectly. We found the right partner. We expanded the acres position. We've got 45Q support. It opens up a bigger portion of the market. You know, when 45Q got expanded, I think we got a lot of questions on, hey, does that mean you're going to get more of the credit? No, that's not the business we're playing in. That's, that's for the guy that's spending the money capturing the carbon. The business we're playing in is we're moving that waste and putting it in the ground, but it opens up more of the marketplace. And, you know, if you start any new business, it can be retail, widgets, whatever, you're trying to figure out where am I going to fit? What is the marketplace? And where do I fit in that marketplace? So now we have a fully expanded marketplace, and I think we've got a very competitive position to build out large storage sites and hubs in, you know, really the, the emitting epicenter uh, of Southeast Texas. Yeah, that's one of the questions is the scalability that you can do. And one of the points on the earlier presentation, too, was acting now because waiting for Q45 and, and, and even further may have the unintended consequences. So, I mean, you guys are getting going right now on, on building this out. Yeah, look, I think you gotta be careful. I mean, you don't wanna, you don't wanna overspend money and, and then not have a project. And so, so for a company like ours, what does that mean? Well, that means, but at the same time, you have to take some risks. You have to lean in on making sure you've got permits and those might require wells. Making sure if there's other land that you need to pick up, pick it up. I mean, always look to enhance that storage fight because you're offering that back to the customers. And then you gotta do feed studies. So there's, there's a capital spend that I think you have to engage in and call those risk dollars. Call those equity dollars, you're not gonna lend any money for those. And, and that they allow you to be prepared for the customer that when they're ready, you're ready. And if you miss being ready when they're ready, you're gonna find someone else that is ready. All right, so at, but for a smaller company, the only way we can do that and not overexpose as a smaller EMP too much of our capital allocation and I'm sure as a former investment banker, we can have all sorts of discussions on EMP capital allocation and shareholder returns and, and what the right debt levels are. So remembering that we're a small cap trying to become a big cap, a large cap, if we're a consensus billion dollar EBITDA company, I could spend $200 million a year on CCS. It isn't gonna deliver revenue for five years from now, so what's appropriate? But by moving in early, that allows us to bring in Chevron. They pay an entry price that they think is totally reasonable. We can take those proceeds, reinvest those in feed studies and wells. That just extends our runway so that we can stay a participant in this, but not overexpose our capital program and then still be ready when the customer's ready. So we've taken, we've taken a different approach than, look, we saw what Denbury did, but they had that green line, no doubt about that. Our whole focus has been on geology and acreage and storage capacity, and then the ability to bring partners into that that stretches our runway so we can then, might, we might have a smaller working interest of a bigger pie, but at least the pie is starting to show up and bake a little bit. And, and so based on your experience for other companies, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges or barriers? So I, I think the challenge is if you're just, if you're a young upstart, you know, operator that knows geology and you're ready to come in there and build a position, well, you're too late. You know, look, I mean, it, these can't be four or 5,000 acre positions. They need to be 40,000 acre positions. 25, 30,000 acre positions, 70,000 acre positions. And you have landowners that are trying to figure out what are we doing here? I mean, is this gonna, is this gonna disenfranchise the mineral interest I have? Because, you know, I, 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 you know, maybe they were a former natural gas producing mineral estate. And now you're thinking about doing CCS. Am I gonna still be able to do that? So the landowners have to figure it out. They've gotta have a large contiguous, you know, acres position with really good geological structures for storage. They need to be shallower 
typically than what the, the, the legacy production was. Um, you need to work with state regulators. So, you know, we knew all that and we moved in very, very early. And now ultimately, we're getting to the point where who really is going to be the counterparty that the industrial emitter is looking to? I don't think they want to have a counterparty of a startup. They're going to look to have a counterparty of someone like Chevron. And I, I talked about that a little bit in the, uh, on the panel. So imagine you're an ammonia company, so that's a pretty low cost. So you've got a pretty good profitable credit. So you decide to monetize that credit. $85, you're going to monetize it. You decide to monetize that to Microsoft. I mean, it doesn't matter. Someone wants to buy the credit. That needs to be a clean transaction. You know, it needs to be, hey, look, Microsoft's buying it at 90 cents on the dollar of what you have. They want a full indemnity to know that they don't have to worry about this. All right, so you're the industrial company. You're giving them that indemnity. Don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. But at the same time, all you did was capture a waste product. Now you're handing custody to that gate on someone who's going to transport it and put it in the ground. You're going to look at them and say, hey, I had to give a clean indemnity. What are you giving me in case there's any leakage, in case there's any auditing on this by the federal government? It's a federal, it's a federal credit. I mean, what, what, can, what financial assurance, outside operational assurance, we can answer that. What financial assurance can you give me? Well, I can set up an insurance product, but Chevron can just give them a parent guarantee and ask can Exxon, by the way, or ask can Oxy. That's pretty damn compelling. So I think for smaller companies, you need to know where you live in the transaction space of all this. And it doesn't mean you can't put something together. You just have to be able to attract the right partners. And so for us, we partner with these companies in our deep water asset position. You know, we, we partner with BP, and we partner with Ox, and we partner with Chevron, and we partner with Shell, and we admire those companies, and we're glad that they trust us. If we're going to build out this business, it's going to be because we've learned how to partner with them again. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, something we talked about before on this podcast is the importance of partnerships as some of these technologies 100%. develop. And that's just a, another piece of why that's going to be critical as we expand the CCUS market. Yeah, and, and look, so the, so the challenge is, I think for smaller companies is do they have those relationships, you know, and, and, and so we're lucky enough to have those relationships. We knew very early as we were putting together the land position and then for your listeners, you know, in a short amount of time, we put together over 250,000 acres totally dedicated to sequestration, absolutely unrelated to our oil and gas business. And that's over 2 billion metric tons or 1.7 to 2 billion metric tons of storage. So that's a lot. Just by you then on a gross basis is almost 2 billion metric tons. So. We put together a very, very large position that, um, that I think is going to be attractive to that emitting community, but to really push that forward and I think and build those stores, we need to have those name brands as a partner because you know who you're competing with. I mean, and I don't say that negatively. Exxon's been very, very aggressive. The Denbury transaction is very, very aggressive. No doubt a lot of that's to deal with their own scope one emissions in Baytown and in Baton Rouge, but clearly they want to build a business as well. And so, um, you know, we've got to figure out where we can fit in. There's room for more, more than one player. Exxon will be the first to admit that. But I think the players are all going to have certain characteristics that speak to operational and financial assurance to the customer. And when you, if you look forward 10, 20 years, uh, particularly around the hard to debate sectors in energy, what role do you think CCUS is going to be playing? I mean, is it going to continue to expand its part of the energy transition? Because, I mean, you, you obviously can't just rely on wind and solar. No, no, There's yeah. so much more. Well, look, you know, I, I think a lot of folks have read Smith's uh, book, talks about, uh, you know, look, the four things that are pillars of our society that we use every day and they're not going to go away. Plastics, cement, ammonia for fertilizer, steel. 
You know, the entire economy is built on these four things. They re also represent 25% of all greenhouse gas emissions, but they also represent opportunities to make them more efficient and clean them up. So, you know, people can have their discussion about gas being a bridge fuel. We're at a time where we have all-time oil demand, and we have all-time oil demand because that oil is then used downstream in different products that we use every day, some of those in which I just mentioned. It's just not going away. And if, if we're just one of the one and a half billion lucky people that have access to that all the time, the other six billion less lucky people want to live where the one and a half billion lucky people live, you know, in terms of energy security, energy accessibility, and all the, and what we enjoy. So CCS just has to find a role because we can't ask people to suffer. We can't ask people who've not even reached our level of enjoyment to sacrifice. We can ask folks like us to sacrifice. Let's find out if there's a willingness you can take a lot of that off the table if you can just make it more efficient. If you can clean it up, and CCS is an application for those pillars of our society that we need to continue to use for a long, long time. Well, Tim, listen, I appreciate you stopping by and, and talking with us. Good stuff. And I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. All right, thanks a lot. The first panel of the day was a big one. A lot to unpack from our conversations with George, Ed, and Tim. So let's now hear from Chris Powers, who is also on stage this morning. He's Vice President of Carbon Capture, Utilization, and Storage at Chevron New Energies. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. And, and so there's a number of different projects out there in, in various stages. I mean, what do you think kind of needs to happen, whether it's from the financial markets, corporates, you name it, to kind of help push these projects forward and, and scale it up to something that's profitable? Yeah, lot, lots of lots of concepts and not a lot of FIDs yet. So I think that's a totally, totally fair statement. Look, I think one of the challenges is, is that this is it's really a new business construct. And I, I when I describe it to folks, I think about sort of Chevron's role, right? We're, we're both focusing on decarbonizing our own assets, but also being a third party business. And so to develop these projects, it looks a lot like components of the traditional business. You're doing exploration, appraisal, asset development projects, then ultimately operations. And you've got to acquire the molecules contractually that you're managing. It's not like where you've got the hydrocarbons in the ground and you're you know, simply producing it. You've got to have a counterparty that's going to capture the CO2, contractually agree with you how to, how to, uh, how to handle that. And then, uh, and then ultimately, I'll say, do the physical aspects of it, the, uh, the process engineering operations and subsurface management. But it's, it's complicated. It requires multiple different parties to line up on their view of the business, the timing of the business, how we're going to do it, roles and responsibilities all simultaneously. And that just takes work because we don't have a lot of go-bys yet to where we can point to and say, oh yeah, this is the similar construct to project A and we're going to replicate this model. I think we're going to get there, but I think it's going to take some of these big projects like, like Bayou Bend, like ours, to get to FID with customers linked up to uh, sort of demonstrate to the rest of the market how this is going to go. And it, it really is going to require some of the, the bigger companies to develop these partnerships to help drive it forward and have the, the financial backing, the expertise from a number of different areas. Because like you said, it's very complicated. It's not just kind of one vertical could go ahead and handle it all. It requires a lot of input. Totally agree. And, and, and look, I think there's a role for many different companies to play in the life cycle. And look, our partner Talos in uh, Bayou Bend, they moved very quickly and sort of brought together the concept of acquiring the poor space that we started Bayou Bend with. But look, I think what we've discovered is as you move forward in the project life cycle, when you're talking about engaging with the emitters, they want to see a strong, resolute, well-capitalized, strong technical capability counterparty on the other end of the contract there. And that's a place where I think incumbents like Chevron 
are going to play a very big role because we bring the subsurface knowledge, we bring the process design knowledge, we bring the complex project management, we bring the balance sheet and the surety. We've been around for 140 years and we intend to be here for 140 more. And what do you think are some of the key needs to help scale this business? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's um, challenging in a number of different areas. I'd say the one that I spend a lot of time thinking about is, is I'll say it policy and regulatory sort of broadly. And then uh, drilling down, um, there's a couple different areas. So you think about the fiscal incentives to get these projects going just like solar, just like when many of the other industries had a, a policy kickstart to really get the businesses growing and scaling. We've got 45Q in the US, which is a big start, but you know, it has, it is time limited. So there's uh, not uncertainty on the revenue stream beyond that. Um, I think that gives uh, some of the investors pause. Okay, how's this gonna, how's this gonna go over time? Um, but then maybe even a bigger one is I'll call it permitting broadly, right? So um, the analogy I like to use is in the traditional upstream business where I spent uh, a big chunk of my career, you sort of have a playbook, you know, you're going to acquire a lease, you're going to drill an exploration well, then you know if you have a discovery, there's a relatively sure pathway. I'm gonna, I can start investing big capital, billions of dollars, and I know that four years down the road when the facility's done, there's a assuming you've done high quality technical work, there's a pretty predictable process to get the drilling permit so you can put your wells on production, drill your wells, put them on production and monetize the asset. We don't quite have that timeline built out yet and that, that construct built out yet. You think about the various um, general types of permitting, but even things like class six permits, which allow you to do the permanent CO2 injection. It's just a new space and uh, these timelines are long right now. So I think the consequence of that is we're stretching out project development timelines because companies don't are going to be less confident taking a parallel path when they're not sure what the certainty is on permit approvals and the like. So you're going to you're going to serialize some of the steps that maybe could have done in parallel because you know you don't want to be too far over your skis before you know the thing's going to move forward. Yeah, how supportive have you found that environment? Because one of the points from the presentation this morning was that the U.S. is kind of farther along with that regulatory environment and policy to help support this, this market. But overall, how have you seen that? Because it seems like some of the challenges in a number of the energy transition areas, whether it be wind or solar, has to do with regulatory permitting policy. And they're trying to free that up to try to hit these targets that we have set. Yeah, absolutely. I think some of the yeah, if you if you just talk about sort of a a headline like the IRA is awesome, it's great. A lot of enabling uh, constructs there to help help this this business and others scale and grow. But then it's the implementation or the opera, opera, operationalization. If we we would talk about in, in my piece of the business, how is it going to be operationalized so that we can actually put it into practice and actually get these projects moving forward? Those are some of the steps that have yet to happen. So I think it's sort of a, a basal level. It's great. We've got IRA. We've got some other uh, frameworks in place that are going to help these projects get started. But now we've got to really start turning the crank, turning the gear, and uh, putting concepts into practice and seeing if we can start accelerating to help this business scale over time. What is it that 
excites you most uh, about CCUS? I, I, I love this question. So I'm, I'm a chemical engineer by training and I uh, have always loved the role I've been able to play in terms of leading people to do something that's important, which is to deliver energy for the world. Look, I'm, I'm an unabashed apologist of saying energy is, is critical to our standard of living and there's billions of people who don't have the same standard of living that we are blessed to have here in North America and in Northwest Europe and other areas. And those people have a right to have affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner energy. So um, energy demand and energy supply are going to have to, energy demand is going to grow, energy supply is going to have to grow over the decades to come. And uh, we're going to have to do it in an ever cleaner way. And for my particular piece of the business, that means in a lower carbon way. So I think about the good work we're able to do to um, develop really fun, interesting, technically challenging projects that can become part of a uh, economic business proposition over time with the right constructs in place and do something great for the environment to make the world um, uh, you know, ever cleaner and uh, more sustainable over time for my kids and for my, uh, my uh, future kids' kids uh, to have, have a great place to live. And so it's, just, it's, it's incredibly exciting. Uh, all the fun things about the traditional business, the geopolitics, the uh, big technical challenges, and you overlay being able to do something really interesting for the planet. It's a lot of fun. What's interesting also is that you know, there be, there's more of a focus these days on how do we address the hard to abate sectors. And I think CCUS is going to be a key part of that going forward. I mean, you talk whether it's, whether it's chemicals, plastics, steel, concrete, you name it. So as you look, call it 20 years down the road, how do you see CCUS continuing to play a role in helping to alleviate the emissions regarding those those areas. Yeah, so we're in all of the above. I'll, I'll start with my personal view and the company's view. We're in all, all of the above believer in terms of uh, what solutions do we need to bring to the table to meet energy demand and to do it in ever cleaner way. So I think solar is going to have a big role to play. I think wind's going to have a big role to play. Those feed electrification, which is going to be a key part of lowering carbon intensity. But there are other industries that are just not amenable. They're not easily abated. They're not easily electrified. But these industries are critical to our quality of life. Cement's a great example, right? Lots of CO2 emissions. We're going to continue to need cement for many years to come. Steel's another one. And you're going to need to apply technologies like CCS to future-proof those industries. And it can be refining, pet chem, power, cement. All of these things are critical to, to life and to the quality of life that we're able to enjoy. And there are not easy solutions to any of these. And so CCS is going to play a key role. It's going to future-proof these industries. It's going to make them sustainable. It's going to protect the capital employed bases that we have in place in many of these industrialized areas over time and provide jobs and growth for many years into the future. Well, Chris, listen, I appreciate you sitting down and talking with us. Hey, David, thank you so much and look forward to talking to you again in the future. conversations today have been a combination of panel discussions, presentations, and fireside chats. Mercy Renteria, my next guest, had one earlier with Rachel Shelby from Woodmac. Mercy works at Andres and Hauser, and her talk was focused on the safety and efficiency across CCUS. She joins me now to tell us about the critical measurements for sustainable, safe, and cost-effective CCUS operation. So um, you were on a fireside chat with Rachel earlier today. What are some of the, the key themes that you guys talked about? Um, we talk about the energy transition, right? Our, our vision or my 
key takeaways, because especially since I am in the green hydrogen arena and also on the hydrogen and carbon capture, sort of like, where do we bridge um, those two worlds? Because that's how I see it right now, right? They're like kind of like two separate worlds. One talking about we're going to electrify everything and everything is going to be green hydrogen. And then the other one is like, hey, no, give us the opportunity to decarbonize, right? Our uh, complex systems here and there. So um, that was one. And then another one in terms of having the operation perspective, right, on what is critical along the uh, carbon capture value chain. So we talked about often they're missing some details. And then again, like the, the devil is in the details, right? And when it comes to instrumentation, sometimes um, people think, well, let's just leave the EPC to spec the instrumentation and we don't have to deal with it, right? Well, guess what? For operators, you're going to be owning, right? Those are your assets that you're going to be developing for the 15 or 20 years, right, to come. So you better make sure that you got the best in class technologies um, that will be, you know, the best fit for purpose for, for those developments, right? So that's what we always talk to operators as well. Hey, you know, this is what you have available in terms of um, technologies for rapid response on the carbon capture and the capture piece, and then also for transportation and, and sequestration. So that's something that we're very keen in talking directly with them. It's interesting. You're, you're involved in, in two of the technologies that are probably the, the hottest topics in the energy transition right now, hydrogen and, and CCUS. Yes, yes. And I just got lucky when I accepted this job. Um, I remember... My boss, they were like, kind of like, um, we are looking for someone that can handle such and such. Um, yes, a unicorn. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? Well, indeed, you know, I didn't know what I was getting to because, of course, I'm like, I know carbon capture. I mean, my, my background is in oil and gas. But green hydrogen, it is different. It is different, right? And then, yes, you definitely, I'm definitely in those, you know, hot topics. But it's amazing because for me, you need to have a balance and you need to bring different technologies in in order, right, to reach net zero. I don't believe that it's only going to be all carbon capture. I do believe in geothermal, in your solar, wind. I had background also in offshore, offshore development. So I think offshore wind, bringing it back and then um, having electrolysis, right, uh, from it and, and making green hydrogen out of offshore wind, that's going to be key, right? And so that's why um, I just love to, you know, to have all of the, the blend of like the different energies, right, that you need in order to reach uh, net zero. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. It's, it's going to be a number of different technologies. There's a number of times it's, there's not a silver bullet. It's a, it's a bunch of different technologies. You've got your wind and solar, but then uh, like carbon capture and other technologies can really help with those hard to debate sectors. Yeah, so it's, it's collaboration is is going to be key across different companies, countries, technologies, you name it, to achieve our targets. What what are your thoughts on the need for collaboration and how that can really be impactful? Collaboration is key. And I will say also humility to say, I don't know. I need your help. We can go together. And and then also sometimes you can get to see that, oh, that was going to be my competitor in this other market, but here is actually my alley, right? And I need from him in order to to move forward. So I think it takes a lot of humility. I actually put together a 
panel along with uh, some other team members back in May for the Offshore Technology Conference. And it was a beautiful event because you got Ehrlich Kidd, Repsol, uh, Technip Energies, Center of Houston's Future, and Anderson House are all talking about we need each other, right, in order to make this happen. We often see that whenever there's a company that wants to monopolize and they say, hey, I want to do it all, you know, it's challenging. There will be some companies that can do it all together because they have the expertise here and there. But I do believe that in order to really do it right, there's going to be a lot of collaboration, especially on the carbon capture. Yeah, just given the different parts of the chain all along that you need that collaboration and coordination. Absolutely. So you because at the end of the day, also, you need to mitigate your risk, right? Um, and how do you mitigate your risk? Right? By, by partnering with, you know, with somebody that knowledge and knows what to do. And, and then also the, uh, the financial piece, permitting piece. You just need a lot of knowledge around you. And, and again, humility. I always touch on that point because I've seen so many companies and so many individuals that are brilliant, but the minute that they don't want to share and they don't want to be humble to say, hey, you know, let's, let's do this together, um, they often trip and they often fail fast, right? Partnership is it's really a key aspect. So tell us a lo- little bit more about Andrus uh, and Hauser. I mean, it sounds like you guys really work with companies to help optimize their portfolios, avert risk, so a lot of risk management. Um, so tell us a little bit more about the work you guys do. Yes, absolutely. So Andrus and Hauser is a Swiss German company because we have it was started by a Swiss engineer and a, a German banker. So it's a private company. We have over 16,000 employees, $3.8 billion. And we have just uh, global facilities around the world. One of the principles that we have, it's a private company. So a lot of people, they think we're public, but no, we're a private company and we like to be close to our clients. So we have production centers all around the world. Um, Our production center here in the United States is in, in Greenwood, in Indianapolis. And then we have uh, practice training units because for us, it's really important uh, and it's key that we uh, we work on the workforce development. So we get involved with kids starting from like 11, 12 years old so they can get to understand what, you know, technologies will work in this um, area, right, that we, we get to help. And so we are an instrumentation company. We provide measurements, composition, quantification, and then um, analysis, right? And so in this uh, carbon capture value chain, we get involved in the capture piece with um, technologies such as Raman that you can do inline uh, monitoring, right? Whenever you're doing your capture for, you can, you can track the concentrations of your immune system and then also the, the degradation of those uh, chemical parts which are like critical, right? Whenever you're getting your, yes. the CO2 streams and then also all the contaminants that you'll be getting. And then all, of course, um, we go into the, the uh, liquefaction, right? There are some challenges in the liquefaction. And then also um, in the transportation that we can help our customers to mitigate their risk. And, and then we go in and also help them in the sequestration. So we have also turnkey solutions around skits, right? So we put together those like fiscal meters, um, et cetera. And companies are really happy with, with us because with those solutions, they'll be able to, to really lower their cost in the entire value chain. So most often 
companies or instrumentation companies can be see like, oh, they sell, you know, uh, widgets and gadgets. But we're like, well, we put everything together and it's a solution, right? And when it comes to, for example, designing a skit, well, it's not only just about putting a bunch of bulbs together and actuators here and there. You need to have a weight arrangement, um, your overall system. There's a metrology behind that, right? And so that has been our expertise in bringing the technology, yes, by itself. If you want to, you know, buy just one piece or, you know, whatever, how many pieces you want, it's okay. But we also bring solutions to you. And then also after that, for the owner and developer of that project, we provide services. So that means we can come in and do uh, maintenance, calibration, et cetera. And then we're also very keen on the digital aspect, right? Every piece of instrumentation um, in-house has like a, a um, it's called heartbeat technology that pretty much is telling you the diagnostics, diagnostics of it. Is it working properly? Am I, am I feeling sick? You know, it literally has like a happy face, like, you know, like different moods. Uh, so that each instrument will tell you how they're feeling. And right now with um, data te technologies and, for example, AKL, you're going to be able to get and track down even whenever you have like one man well monitoring. You're going to be able to get data right in the middle of nowhere and then also accumulate that data. And then pretty much with machine learning and AI, you're going to have um, instruments that are going to be quite intelligent that they're going to be able to know what to do almost right by themselves. Uh, we'll get there, right? That that will be like, that's the promise. Um, but it's it's really unique because again, coming, I had the operator perspective. I have an EPC background into big offshore platforms here and there. And whenever we were thinking, or I was thinking instrumentation or the group will really see instrumentation, like, oh, I just give it to XYC. And they were not even paying attention to that. But in reality, instrumentation is 1% of your overall total cost in a project, but that 1%, if something goes wrong, you basically don't have a project. You think about it, that instrumentation, it's like your, the heart or the brain, right, in a person. So you need to make sure that that works properly. God, interesting. And I'm curious, it's obviously a very impactful job that, that you got brought in for with a background in oil and gas. And I've got a background, my background's oil and gas as well. So curious on, on the switch and, and what kind of interested you in this role and drove you towards it. I will say that, yes, and it's it's a great question because everyone, I can think about my great-great-grandfather, um, they're all in oil and gas, you know, like petroleum engineers and geologists and geophysics. I said, you know what? I actually heard from my, the very first time that I've heard about, hey, Mercy, you should be looking at hydrogen because it's going to be something that will revolutionize the whole world. It was coming actually from one of my mentors, and he was a geologist and a petrol engineer. So I said, if he's saying that, right, kind of like steering away and then, you know, looking for other um, options, I said, I have to pay attention, right? And then, and that was probably like four years before the energy transition officially boomed. So when this opportunity came along, I was like, you know what? It is time. I think it's the right thing to do because at the end of the day, you are going to be getting into cleaner sources of energy, right? And you are like lowering the carbon intensity and, and having less uh, carbon footprint. So, um, yeah, it was, it was easy for me. And also because I think about what am I going to be leaving, 
you know, for my children and the children of my children, right? So we want to leave a better world, cleaner, abundant in energies, right? And so for me, it was sort of like, okay, it's the time. Melissa Mercy, I appreciate you stopping by and and spending time with me. Yes, Uh, absolutely. Great discussion. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you.